0: Profile you 're listening to Premier Christian Radio where faith comes to Well, good afternoon and welcome along to the profile with me, Justin Briley. This is the program where we sit down with leading Christians in all walks of life to talk about their faith journey. ...and what they've been doing. Um, we're going to be talking today to Nigel Cameron, very exciting guest joining me. I'll be introducing him in just a moment's time. But uh, this programme, as ever, brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. If you'd like to read more interviews with leading Christians, do go there and ask for a free sample copy. PremierChristianity.com slash free sample. And don't forget, you can find the profile On its own profile podcast, Uh, find that at our website, premierchristianradio.com slash the profile. So my guest today is Nigel Cameron, bioethics and future technology expert. He's held numerous academic positions, currently serves as president of the Center for Policy on Emerging Technologies in Washington, D.C. He's a Christian and the author of a new book called The Robots Are Coming, Us, Them and God, published by CARE, where he assesses the possibilities and challenges afforded by robotics and the advances of artificial intelligence. Nigel, welcome along to the program. Great to be here. It's great to have you on. We always start at the beginning uh, with uh, with the profile. So before we get on to the future of robotics, let's go back to the, the past of Nigel Cameron. Did you grow up in a Christian family yourself? Um, I think the answer would be not really. I grew up in the 1950s when things were
1: still pretty formal and children were sent to Sunday school by their parents who generally didn't bother going. And right.
0: my family was that kind of family. <laughs> And do you get sent to Sunday school then? Oh, yes.
1: Yes, we did. Did it make any
0: impact on you? I was
1: baptized as an Anglican baby and then sent to Methodist Sunday schools. And I rather enjoyed myself in terms of faith. uh, I think the answer would be no. Mm. Um, But these were certainly fun times with uh, nice, well-meaning people. When did Christian faith come alive for you then? Well, like so many of us in my teens, I began to think about things somewhat more existentially. Um, And uh, my... uh, I remember when I was, at, I was at school, I was at grammar school, I remember one very striking Whitson Tide. Mm. We sang the hymn, "Come Down, O Love Divine. And I remember thinking, I was probably 15, 16, that something had happened to me since last Whitson, when I last sang the hymn. Mm. Um, so this, this was not the standard, you know, 331 on a Friday <laughs> afternoon uh, conversion experience, but uh, there was a process going on. Right. And, uh, and I was becoming a Presbyterian Christian because I actually was living in Edinburgh. My parents were living in Edinburgh then. And since when I have been a mainline Presbyterian.
0: What's distinctive about a Presbyterian as opposed to, say, an Anglican or a Baptist or a Methodist? Well, there are, of course, endless jokes about these
1: things, which we, <laughs> <laughs> we probably haven't got time to go into now. Um, I mean, Presbyterians, in many of them I think there's a middle of the roadness. There's a, mm. there's a formality. We tend to like hymns with, you know, hymns with rhymes and different verses every verse, you know, rather than the kind of, you know, modern praise approach. Uh, we, we like formality in worship. We think it's important without going all the way to the more traditional mm. Episcopal and, of course, Catholic approaches. So it's a kind of middle way in worship terms. And I think there's a higher view of the dignity of God and the dignity of the
0: individual within the Reformed tradition,
1: which I am happy to adhere to now many years later.
0: And obviously very influenced by theologians like Calvin and others in the reformed movement.
1: Well, Calvin, of course, can Calvin was a much bigger man, as it were, than many of the Calvinists. He was a right. much more interesting man and a much broader he, he tends broad, to get reduced thinker. a bit into five he points He tends these days. to get reduced yeah. into five points, and yes. I think Calvin would have been pretty cross if right. he, he, he were having that conversation. I mean, very much concerned about culture, about mm. government. I mean, he, would, I would Calvin today
0: be writing books on robotics and artificial intelligence, do you think? I think he'd be writing a forward to mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, look... Um, Obviously, faith, you know, did come alive to you through this process. Did Did you ever consider Christian ministry uh, specifically in the church?
1: Oh yes, well, I started off planning to be a Presbyterian minister, mm. and I mean, I read theology at Cambridge and then went to Edinburgh and uh, did an MDiv, um, and you know, and spent a year as an assistant minister in Dunblane Cathedral, Dunblane, right. which of course became famous of later course, for the massacre, right? I, yeah. I mean, I I did a weekly assembly in that in that school gym wow, where they right. killed those children later very strong memories of that. and uh, But then I uh, did a PhD, mm-hmm. and I was actually quite open to going to pastoral ministry, but I set up a Christian think tank in Edinburgh, and then went to teach in a theological seminary in the States back
0: in the, in the 90s, mm. and spent eight years there. So theology and academia called in the end.
1: It did, it did indeed. And I
0: suppose in the process you've spoken to and trained a lot of people who have gone into pastoral ministry?
1: For better or for worse, <laughs> yes. Some of them keep in touch, you know. Um, and But interestingly, alongside all this, um, I mean, back in my teens before and somewhat after my initial faith experience, um, I was going into politics, mm. British politics. I was going to be prime minister. I was quite determined to be. And <laughs> when I've seen the kind of failures of many people of my generation and younger over the last few years in this role, i rather think maybe I should have. But I was very quite committed to a to political life. I was going to go to Oxford do PPE, which is the standard way into British politics, and then shifted and thought, no, I want to go and do theology. I want to go into ministry. Mm. And looking back on that, I would never advise anyone to think quite how I was thinking then. This right. was a rather pietistic way of thinking. I didn't have, didn't have a mentor, didn't really have good advisors. I knew senior Christian people, but they, they didn't take initiatives. One of the things I've learned dealing with younger people now is i'll just say things to them i'll say well had you thought about that and yes. isn't this a crazy idea mm-hmm. i want I'll, I'll i'll just chip in right i can't do much harm it seems to me because most people don't actually get good advice right but anyway but i decided instead of going that way and it, one thing it's meant is that i've had a long-standing interest in policy right and in the whole political idea and how christians should and maybe shouldn't be involved in that process
0: well we're going to talk about your, obviously your career in biotechnology and and that sort of area in terms of the policy, but um I, I the internet of course can trawl up all kinds of things these days, and I noticed that some of your actually earliest books were actually on the whole intersection of creationism and evolution and that sort of thing. What what drew you into the to, sort of looking into that early in your Christian academic career and. And have your views changed over over the years on that on that issue? I think my views have mellowed a bit. Although, I mean, I, I was always uh, somewhat on the fence.
1: I just thought mm. those were rather important issues, and I thought that the, the kind of arguments being used by by a lot of lot of scientists who were Christians um, to sort of avoid having to address the, the, the creation narratives and so on were. I think they, they, they were they were a bit of weaselly. I mean, mm. I think they weren't really facing some of the fundamental questions being raised there about you know God creating a perfect world mm. and, and human beings falling and the fall tying in all sorts of evil right. and so on. Um, and I, I was somewhat on the fence, but I thought these were important questions. They'd somewhat been relegated on the one hand to slightly crazy people mm. and on the other hand to people who weren't thinking very seriously because it would interfere with their careers. Right. You know? And I think things like the intelligent design movement, which mm. I, I'm not a total fan of, but mm. I've admired its development. Mm. I think it's a, more, it's a much more intellectually serious, culturally serious effort right. to, to get back into some of those discussions.
0: I see. So, um, so for you, you, you think that there is a place for Christians who are not necessarily um, tied into the sort of theistic evolutionary way of, of seeing that. Well, there certainly are
1: Christians like that. But I, but I think it depends partly how you, how you start defining your terms. Mm. I mean, part of the point of intelligent design is that basically if there is a God, then, I mean, plainly he's God and mm. he must somehow have masterminded this process. And you can't just sort of pretend it was a matter of chance, even if it may look like chance sure. on our end. Um, And what's, of course, very interesting is that a lot of the top people in science and in philosophy are Christians. Mm, mm. Um, And in various different ways, they've come to terms with these problems. Um, I mean, plainly, the old fundamentalist idea that it all happened, you know, 4004 BC and so on. I mean, mean, a lot of people still believe that, particularly in the States. Mm. I mean, it's sort of sad that they believed it. I think one of the most interesting things that we've discovered, if you like since Bible times has been time Mm. and the enormous expanses of time which there have been and which perhaps there will be. I mean, one of the things I drop into conversations with Christians about technology issues now is, well, how will this look in a thousand years' time? How will this look in a billion years' time? Because Mm. God may well be leaving us here for the next billion years to work with these technology issues. This isn't all going to be
0: over tomorrow afternoon. Absolutely. Well, that's where things began for you. Obviously, you've then pressed into the areas of... Um, bioethics, human life, technology, and so on. Um, what, what kind of really led you to, you know, make that your life's work, um, it, it's certainly in the first half of your, your career in, in the Christian world?
1: Uh, I'm, you asked very good questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know, a couple of years ago, um, I have 13 grandchildren. And Congratulations. Them, that's, well, that's a well, remarkable number of Well, it's, it's quite easy to have grandchildren. Having <laughs> I mean, children is, is more of a problem. Um, and one of my daughters several years ago said, who might not see her children much because they live a long way, she said, well, why, would you write down some of the stories about your childhood so I can share them with the children? So I took this rather more seriously than she perhaps <laughs> intended, and I wrote about 60,000, 70,000 words and published <laughs> it on Amazon, and it's out there now, and I hope. It uh, salesmen pick up after this conversation, but it, it took me back into my childhood in all sorts of interesting ways, and mm. I began to explore, you know, how I put pieces together as a child. And one thing I was reminded of, which I completely forgotten, was when I was at school. I mean, I, I was doing economics and history and that kind of thing. Um, I actually I was given the prize for the, the science prize for arts forms. Mm. Which look, astonishes me. I have no memory of how this happened, <laughs> but plainly I've had this long-standing interest in science technology questions, yes. and then of course all of a sudden bioethics sort of breaks on the world mm. um, with new technology issues with in vitro with cloning and those sort of issues in the in the eighties and the nineties, and um, surprise surprise hardly any Christians seem to be interested in responding. Right. And so I decided, well, let's do some things about this. So I set up a magazine called Ethics and Medicine back in 1983, which is quite a long time ago. Mm. It's still going strong. or still going weak, but it's still going. Yes. Um, and organizing conferences about the Warnock Report, you know, which was the big defining report on in vitro technology. And this just kind of pulled me into all sorts of conversations right. I didn't know much about. Mm. But
0: it mean, meant I got interested and began learning. And, something and you about. learned very quickly, I'm sure, along the way. And, and, and in a sense, because Christians weren't really stepping up to engage with these big cultural scientific issues, you, you felt obliged to, at some level, maintain some kind of a Christian perspective in these? Well,
1: in I these think, areas. you know, it's in the fallen world, that little sort of French phrase de demure, you know, for lack of anything better or right. any one better, you know, sometimes you just have to step in and, uh, and your ignorance um, is something which turns into a certain amount of knowledge and wisdom as time goes by.
0: And your work in sort of looking at policy in these areas in the UK has often been in conjunction with CARE, who obviously are interested in these sorts of bioethical issues. And over in the U S you've, you've sort of been involved with a number of different foundations, um, there that, that. and, and by and large, you know, where you, when you started, you say in the eighties and nineties, it was issues around cloning and just people just getting going really with, with manipulating DNA and chromosomes and so on in vitro fertilization. Today, you know, we're looking at the possibility of three parent children. We're, we've um, got all kinds of gene editing capabilities. Um, things are just continuing to progress are christians any more engaged than they were when you began
1: well it, it's a sad thing i mean I, <clears throat> I thought a bit about this recently looking back and i think the answer is no and in proportionate terms given you know the significance of the questions i mean maybe even less because of course the issues keep just burgeoning mm. and we had all this the biology stuff going you know 20 30 years ago now with in vitro and Cloning and now three-parent babies coming out of that that conversation. Now, of course, we have all the AI robotic stuff. And uh, well, I mean, when did you last sort of you know hear a sermon from you know from your vicar from your your pastor on on anything to do with these subjects? Mm. Um, and and it is an extraordinary thing. It's as if the church is basically backing up into a situation every year less engaged in the contemporary world than it was in last year.
0: So where do you find yourself personally when it comes to some of these issues? Obviously, each one of them is nuanced and re- would require a whole interview in itself. But to, to pick on one, for instance, let's let's talk about three-parent children. Now, this is new technology um, that has been now made legal in the UK and in other countries, whereby um, parents who expect to pass on some kind of genetic uh, disease to their children could see that um not happen by introducing extra DNA from a third party um, many will say fantastic wonderful advance in technology that's Christians should be supporting that kind of an issue um, okay what are the what are the not so great aspects of that as far as you're concerned and, and how do you balance those two I suppose my thinking on these sort of issues and I mean and you, can, you can go back
1: to the you know artificial insemination and, and donor gametes and so on mm. from a generation ago is sort of prefiguring this discussion I suppose I'm a little less of a mind that we should ban things Mm. and heavily regulate them in a way I think I might more naturally have thought 30 years ago. Okay. Um, but I remain equally uneasy about these questions. I think people must make decisions in conscience. From time to time, people I know or friends of people I know will come to me and they'll ask for personal advice about these things. I mean, I sat down with a couple, goodness, a number of years ago in the States who were friends of a student I'd been teaching, and they were wrestling with, with these questions. I and mean, we spent hours talking and about, prayed about this. And at the end of the day, I was saying to them, I said, you're going to make up your own mind, but I'm not going to tell you what to do. Mm. I mean, you're not talking here you know, about something which is obviously wicked and terrible and yeah. don't do it. You're talking about a complicated decision. It's a gray area. Which you have to live with. Mm. And I'm pointing out to you some of the problems you need to surmount if you're going to decide to go that way. Mm. And I think that's pretty much how it would three-parent babies or four-parent babies or five-parent babies. <laughs> right. I mean, people, people want a baby. They want a healthy baby. And, I mean, who could, who could deny – that at one level, mm. but what are you what, what what kind of price are we paying to get there? I mean, what you know, what people tend to forget, it's amazing how even Christians forget, we are all going to die. I mean, you know, human, we're, we're mortal, we're frail. You know, diseases out there, but mortality. I mean, you know that nothing is perfect in this life, and the notion, and it isn't as if you can create the perfect child who will live forever. And coping with risk, coping with disease, this is all part of the human condition. We're so much better at it than we were. 30 years ago, quite apart from 300 years ago, when everyone sort of had, you know, rickets and arthritis and tooth pain all their lives and somehow mm. managed to cope and be happy mm. families and, you know, um, write music and all, all the wonderful things people did back then. It's so much easier for us. And I think this pursuit of perfection um, ultimately will we'll never reach perfection. There will always be diseases and problems and challenges. And um, we set ourselves up for failure. But I think it's a matter of conscience, and I certainly have Christian friends who would disagree with me and who've made choices about these technologies that I don't think I would have made, but I was never faced with that choice.
0: Sure. You've also obviously done a lot of work in the area of beginning of life and end of life issues. Um, So these are both hot button issues very often, perhaps more so even in in the U.S., um, where they really do have political implications more so probably than in the U.K., Um, Where do you personally stand on the issue of abortion, for instance, and um, how does that play into what what you're doing in a somewhat secular sphere today um, when it comes to decision-making and policy-making in this area?
1: Well, I certainly think abortion is a fundamental moral problem, and uh, I think abortion takes takes a human life. I think there's no question about that. Um, uh, It's a biological fact. Um, I think what the law should do about it is complicated. I don't think even... The most enthusiastic pro-life people would say women who have abortion should go to jail for homicide. So I think I think it's, it's a fuzzy – it's a, always mm. been a fuzzy area, yeah. even if one thinks abortion is fundamentally wrong and that, and that there's no way around that. Um, what you do in law is a different question. Um, in the States, of course, it's as much more political issue as it is here. Um <sighs> My I, I certainly have actually rather good friends who are on the complete other end of this whole mm. whole discussion in mm. a conscientious way and I respect mm. them for that. Mm. Um at the same time I, I think that um, if I were I, I were faced with a decision if one of my children, grandchildren were, if a friend was, I mean I would simply say, Well, I, I, I couldn't countenance this. I mean this this mm. is taking a human life. Um on the other hand, it, it isn't quite the same as taking a human life mm. of, of a, of a mm. born baby. Peter Singer, interestingly, uh, we were talking about Peter Singer yeah. earlier, who's a, a very interesting man because he's a very liberal bioethics guy who follows arguments in the way that most people won't. He'll to their logical conclusion. To their logical conclusion. He's a very mm. useful, he's sort of mm. bookend in these debates. Mm. And, I mean, he has said, well, yes, he said, I agree. So taking the life of a child in utero is the same thing as taking its life after it's born. He said, what's the problem? I agree with the pro-life people. There, no. And he thinks you should be able to take the life of handicapped babies after they're born. Yes. Um, and isn't, isn't that an interesting, interesting argument? Um, so, I mean, it seems to me that there's that this, 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 this a spectrum here. But once yes. human life starts, uh, you're, you're taking a human life. And I think, I think you shouldn't do it.
0: I suppose the, the difficulty is when, when it comes to the real-life decisions about what sort of policy you implement, you know, because many people have argued that simply banning abortion actually increases the risks of obviously backstreet terminations mm-hmm. that sort of thing and even i understand in the political sphere um there there is evidence some people have posited the idea that that under more liberal um presidencies uh in regard to these kinds mm-hmm. of issues the number of abortions has actually fallen against more if you like conservative presidencies with with more anti-abortion sort of views where actually the abortion rates go up and it's there's it's more tied into sociological issues than necessarily simply whether the law allows or doesn't allow for abortion.
1: I think it's very complicated I think there's been a turning against abortion in American society um, in the last 20-30 years which hasn't had much to do with the pro-life movement. I think younger women particularly are thinking through these things afresh, and the whole issue isn't isn't so politicised as it was um, and they're making decisions for themselves. The New York Times found a piece, a very series of pieces, a few years ago, about mothers and daughters. And the mothers were these sort of progressive feminist women, you know, who'd fought all all the, all the battles about mm. the right the right to choose. And their daughters were pushing back and saying, "No, no, this is mm. awful. This is mm. a baby." Mm. Um, I, th- I think it's important not just to play politics here yeah. and let people make conscientious decisions. Yeah. But yeah, it, certainly, it seems to me that, that that abortion is basically an early form of euthanasia, um, and it's a form of euthanasia which is never voluntary.
0: And there are, of course, some states in America that have also very much liberalized end-of-life issues, um, euthanasia in particular. I think in Oregon, for instance, they've they've for some time had uh, quite um, liberal views on on people being able to terminate their life. Um, And what what are the issues, I mean, again, in a nutshell, that, that are emerging from that? Are we seeing any kind of evidence of good or ill coming from those sorts of places where they have decided to go down that road. Yes, Oregon took a lead in you know
1: what is framed as physician-assisted suicide. Basically, if your doctor helps you to die, the doctor is killing you. Let's not kid ourselves mm. about this. It's basically suicide and homicide at the same time. Um, there haven't been a vast number of cases. The argument's been made that, in fact, this has been quite restricted and it wasn't as you know, its foes suggested everybody was going to start being killed off. Mm. Um, and that is true, but nevertheless, it, it is happening. People are making these decisions. If you want to see how bad it can go, of course, you go to Belgium and you go to the Netherlands, you go to Holland, just you know, just over the, over the, uh, over the channel, and North Sea there. Um, and, I mean, in, in the Netherlands, we've had this going on for 25 years, and there are thousands of people regularly killed by doctors. It's a routine part of medical practice. Belgium followed the same way. There was a case just a couple of weeks ago. A woman, I think, in her 30s, and her only, only medical issue where she was depressed, and the doctor killed her for it. I mean, that, that's how, where this has gone. And they've also, of course, in the Netherlands, they've, they've gone after children now, so children can be killed. And, I mean, I, it's very interesting. You know, the fact that I wrote this book on, on robots now, the best book I wrote uh, was a book about, about Hippocrates, which, which I wrote back, back about 30 years ago, called The New Medicine, Life and Death After Hippocrates, about the way that the medical tradition was falling apart. And you go back into the Hippocratic Oath. the Hippocratic Oath, there's no abortion, but it also says no euthanasia. I mean, the Hippocratic doctors were not out killing people. Um, and they this, this set medicine on its course in the whole history of the West. And it was pre-Christian. I mean, this was a sort of you know, Greek philosophical idea that doctors don't go around killing people or helping kill people. Um, and that has dominated medicine really until the 1950s and 60s. Um, of course, back in Britain, with the abortion act all the royal colleges were opposed to liberalizing the abortion law. Well, it's changed now. And British Medical associations have been traditionally opposed to euthanasia. Um, but medicine was opposed to these things. Interestingly, at times when there wasn't much you could do. I mean, really, you know, there's nothing more we can do. Back in the 18th century, it meant there was nothing more we can do. And you could lie there dying of cancer or something for years. Whereas now we have an awful lot we can do, and at the same time we decide, oh, but we don't want to bother doing it. So you have the hospice movement on the one hand, focused really on the care of those who are dying, an enormously valuable thing. I'm privileged to meet Cicely Saunders and, and involve her in some events we did years ago, the, the founder of the modern hospice mm-hmm. movement. And at the same time, we have all these pressures to kill people. The real problem with killing people is it saves money and it s- solves problems. If if euthanasia cost half a million pounds, I wouldn't be so worried about it. But euthanasia saves large amounts of money. And given the pressures on our healthcare system and given the fact that a lot of doctors and a lot of relatives want to get people out of the way because they're a nuisance, we've got to protect the rights of patients. And I think that means protecting their right to live
0: really interesting stuff um i wish we had more time to to talk about that but we we must talk about some other issues we're going to be in the next section of the program really delving into the issue of artificial intelligence and robotics which is really what you've been looking at in in more more recent years um what what though overall is is your view of how christians should engage with whether it's these issues on biotechnology end-of-life issues And or indeed the the, the issues of a lot of people see Christians as having knee jerk reactions to things being sort of regressive and and that sort of thing. And often science and faith are uh, kind of posited as somehow opposites to each other and all that sort of thing. I mean, I'm guessing you interact, though, at the levels you interact with people, with people of faith, people without faith. and, And that it's not as simple as sort of Christians are just sort of trying to push back on where society's going all the time.
1: Well, one doesn't want to be too down on Christians. I mean, we're Christians and, <laughs> and you know, we're all and we're all for them and we all do our best. But I think Christians are intellectually very lazy. Um, I think a typical a typical, you know, church is composed of quite smart people, you know, who have all sorts of different sort of jobs, maybe professional jobs, maybe maybe, you know, more more rudimentary sort of jobs. But I mean they do jobs for these are the people who've trained and people who are, you know, busy all day and and, and and they go to church and they really want to go back to Sunday school. Right, They want it to be easy. Mm. Um, and they do not want to be challenged to think. And it means that all the thinking gets done outside. And interestingly, I mean, the, the, the sort of the approach of so many pastors is that, well, they want to keep the church basically talking about religion, about matters of faith. Uh, they don't want – they think it would be secularizing the church to talk about robots or talk about you know, CRISPR gene technology or whatever, whatever the issue might be. Or even climate, or you know, something environment issues, um, and the irony is, what's happening is the opposite, because they won't address these things. Um, people leave the church on Sunday afternoon, or whenever the church the service finishes, and they absorb all their attitudes toward all of these huge contemporary questions from their neighbours, from the magazines they read, from the websites they read, from the radio, going to work, and so on. Um, and these are not framed These approaches are not framed By, yeah. by, by the Christian faith And I, and I, I The faster It doesn't matter so much When nothing is changing out there Maybe in the middle of the 19th century It didn't really matter very much And mm. uh, now it matters hugely Because these are vast new yeah. questions And it isn't just the church Isn't addressing them The church members of them I mean, The body of Christ Is basically having its approaches shaped By whatever happens to be The hottest thought out yeah. there So we're, we're, we're really moving backwards
0: My guest today on The Profile is Nigel Cameron. He's a bioethics and future technology expert. He's held numerous academic positions, currently serving as president of the Center for Policy on Emerging Technologies in Washington, D.C. His latest book is The Robots Are Coming, Us, Them and God, published by CARE. I'm Justin Briley speaking to Nigel today here on The Profile. And we'll be back as we look at the issues surrounding technology, artificial intelligence and robotics in the next section of today's edition of The Profile. There's a knife crime epidemic in our capital city. In the February edition of Premier Christianity magazine, meet the inspiring Christians bringing God to the gang leaders in the battle for London. Plus, Kay Warren talks about how her marriage to megachurch leader Rick Warren nearly hit rock bottom and what brought them back again. Sam Hales asks whether evangelicalism can survive in the age of Trump, where's Sutton on what to do when God doesn't heal, and the amazing account of how Corrie Ten Boom's unshakable courage saw. Thousands of Jews rescued in World War II. All that plus much more. Ask for your free copy at premierchristianity.com slash freesample. The profile you're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to the second part of today's edition of The Profile with me, Justin Brierley, where every week we sit down with an interesting Christian to talk about their walk of faith and life. Don't forget, uh, you can find more interviews with leading Christians in our monthly magazine, Premier Christianity magazine. And uh, you can ask for a free sample copy by going to the website premierchristianity.com slash free sample. And of course you can find the profile on its own podcast too. Just look for the profile wherever you find your podcasts or go to our website, PremierChristianradio.com slash the profile. Well, today on the programme, I've been joined by Nigel Cameron, bioethics and future technology expert and author of a new book, The Robots Are Coming, Us, Them and God, which was recently published by CARE, very much aimed at Christians, helping them to understand the issues, some of the opportunities and the challenges involved. And um, it's very much a study guide in a way. Every chapter ends with questions that could be asked, I suppose, in a small group setting or on an individual basis or in perhaps some sort of church discussion. Um, what what made you want to specifically produce this, which is a very accessible lay-level book on these issues around artificial intelligence and robotics, Nigel? Well,
1: I've been getting into discussions specifically about the issue of robots and jobs. I mean, The Economist magazine flew me out to Hong Kong to speak about that at their Asia Investor Summit and some similar sorts of things in a purely secular context because I've been tracking the way in which the... The whole robot job debate was going, and yet was not being given sufficient prominence. Political leaders and so on weren 't taken as seriously and so i I'd, I'd been doing some writing and speaking about that um, and uh, off the off the back of that, because I mean most of my work is in a secular context um, I, I I began doing some thinking about well, what really, you know, what, what really is the, the the Christian conversation here, which mm. is a much broader discussion of course it isn 't just about jobs that 's one small component of it as as we you know as, i mean you know, we have this this, this uh, commission to go out and have dominion and, and all that and our dominion is now ending up with us making machines which are increasingly like us. And what is what does all this mean? So I just explored around it some reading and 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 thought well let's let's uh, get it out there. I mean it interests me that this hasn't been happening. I mean there aren't dozens of books like this out there. I'd love it if there were. Uh, and in fact, I had an interesting experience recently with one of the top American Christian publishers. I know the guy who runs the thing, and I just sent it over to him and say, "I mean, I hadn't thought much about this, but let's do an American edition. I'd have to revise some of it." And he read some of it and got a colleague to read some of it, and he said, "There just isn't a market in, in the Christian in the Christian bookshop."
0: How interesting! I mean, right. Christians don't really want to think about this stuff. So I, anyway, I'm, I'm making some waves. That's that's so interesting that Christians just don't seem – because if you look at our culture, everybody seems to be talking about this. You know, the TV programs like Humans, Black Mirror, Westworld, they're all imagining a near future where we're increasingly engaging with very human-like – Uh, advanced artificial intelligence and asking all kinds of interesting ethical questions through those programmes about it. I mean, you you bring up some of those in the book, obviously. Westworld is this, um, well, it's based on the 1970s novel and film by Michael Crichton, but it's an updating of that where people effectively go into a a Western theme park stocked with these, uh, uh, well, very advanced animatronic robots, but which are almost indistinguishable from humans and can do more or less anything they like to them, including killing them, having sex with them, um, and it raises all kinds of ethical questions around: what well, is that? What we want to be doing mm. with our technology? Um, what's your view in terms of the let's call it entertainment side that often does drive actually a lot of mm. technological advance?
1: Well, I think I think it's fascinating that we've seen a whole series now of sort of popular mainstream um, movies, TV programs addressing these profound ethical questions. It isn't the church that's doing this. Mm. It's 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 people out to make money out of broadcasting. Yeah, uh, Michael Crichton's book's very interesting. It was the first movie he actually directed um, back in mid seventies, whenever yeah. it was, Westworld. I remember watching it shortly after then. And I actually met, McCracken is now dead, sadly, he died mm. quite young. Very interesting man. I met him a number of times in the States, and he took part in some events we organized some years ago. Very, very thoughtful enormously tall. He was about six foot seven Gosh. or something. <laughs> and he was a doctor, he was an MD from Harvard. Ah. Not a typical sort of you know, writer about no. this stuff. Very thoughtful man. And it fascinates me that Westworld has come back 30 years later as this very successful um, series exploring this stuff at a pretty fundamental level. Mm. I mean, what, what what does it mean if you confront somebody who maybe is human, maybe is not? Um, and does it mean you can just do what you like with them because they're just computers? What are you doing to yourself if you decide to chop them up or have sex with them or something like that? Um, because, of course, they it isn't that they're made in the image of God, but they're made in the image of humans who are made in the image of God. Indeed. So
0: this is yeah. not, ai think, a simple thing. They're not just machines. It, they're it, machines sort, sort of doing moral things. It, it sort of takes it a, a little bit beyond just sort of video games where you get to shoot people up, which is has its own moral questions in a sense. But this is when you're being presented with someone who in principle is indistinguishable from another human being and you're saying, well... Since they're effectively a robot, I can do what I like. There is that question of it may may not harm the robot because the robot can't perhaps experience emotions or whatever. Though all of that gets called into question, of course, in, in Westworld. But but it, what does it do to us as humans when we start engaging with objects in that sort of way?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it's it's very much about us. Um, I think the same when the discussions about animals and the treatment of animals are about us. You know, I mean, you know Wilberforce was one of the founders of the RSPCA. Very interesting. He wasn't just freeing slaves. And one of his concerns was if people do these things to their animals, they will do these things to their children. Um, and that very much how we, how we respond to other intelligent, sensitive uh, creatures, even homemade creatures like robots, uh, tells us a lot about ourselves. And this is one reason I think these issues are so interesting. But it makes them very complicated. And, of course, sad to say, I don't think Christians warm to complicated issues. We like simple issues. I like simple issues. It's right. It's wrong. Euthanasia is
0: wrong. Simple as that. But what does it mean if you're confronting a humanoid Mm -hmm. robot? Just sticking with the the Hollywood side of this, um, you reference a number of films as well in the book that have addressed these issues one that you come back to a few times is the film AI by Steven Spielberg. Do you want to just give us the premise of that film and, and the kinds of issues it raised about the differences between so-called auger or people, humans and, and mecha, um, humanoid creatures but that are still robotic?
1: Yes, yeah, Spielberg's film, mean, it's, it's well worth a view, a review, 20 years or something later. In some ways, it was a pretty bad film. They, they put all the effort into the sort of Spielberg side of it, you know, into all the effects. But the effects are very, very, they draw you in. I mean, the thing that I most remember about it is this scene of this country fair. The basic idea is that when people's robots go wrong, they throw them away. But they don't just sort of recycle them. They they let them run off into the forests and they live their sort of their sort of rustic life on their own. All these oddly looking, half broken robots, and for entertainment purposes, people round them up and bring them into a sort of gladiatorial arena to fight and be destroyed. And, of course, the robot whom we've got to know is rounded up on one of these occasions, which draws us into this thing at this country fair. And so you see these robots basically being used as gladiatorial um, material Mm. to be killed for fun. And I I found that really very, very disturbing, Um, partly because they've all been given cute characters and so on, of course, in the film. But the notion that you create something very like yourself. And then you use it in the very opposite way of the way that you believe you should ever treat yourself. I mean, you know, the, the basic moral idea, I mean, you know, uh, summarized by Kant and so on, is that you know, humans have to be ends and not means, and that you should never ultimately use somebody else simply as something you use. It has to ultimately to be about them. And this, of course, completely inverts that when you produce creatures very like us and you use them as means, um, ultimately, as in Spielberg's film, just so that you can have fun looking at them being killed.
0: And this all sort of ties in to the sexual element of this. And as I say, if if anywhere is sort of pushing the drive towards more and more realistic humanoid robots, it's actually the, the sex industry where uh, we are seeing now being marketed these sort of very realistic sex dolls, effectively high-tech sex dolls. and And, and that in itself gives many people pause for thought. I sat down to speak, though, to David Levy recently, who is at the forefront of, you know, advocating for the future of this sort of technology and believing it will be good for people who struggle under normal circumstances to find a partner and that sort of thing. Um, uh, where, where do you land on, on the idea of, of using robots effectively for that particular kind of purpose?
1: Well, I think I think you're back in the same position. It seems to me, and one of because going back to Westworld, the original Westworld, mm. you know, the cult movie, and then the series that many of us have now watched. I mean, there are two things going on here really in our treatment of of these humanoid creatures. I mean, one is killing them, and the other one is having sex with them, um, and and they both raise these fundamental questions of propriety about what this is doing to us, um, and the notion that you create a being which is made in the image of the image of God, his sort of second-level second, second level, mm. um, resemblance of God, merely for your pleasure. I mean, it's the very opposite of a relationship, uh, purely one-sided. And again, I'm not saying we should outlaw these things. We should round up people like David Levy and lock them up for the rest of their lives. <coughs> I did make a rather throwaway comment during an interview a few months ago. Maybe we should put a 1,000% tax on these things, which would severely discourage their use. And this sort of hit the headlines briefly. Um, And, I mean, maybe that wasn't such a bad idea. I mean, I think there are ways of discouraging things that don't necessarily involve criminalizing them.
0: Right, rather like we tax cigarettes and things like that, which we overall consider are bad for our health, but not bad enough that we would ban them. I I mean, it does raise that. I mean, when I spoke to David Levy, I I raised the issue which others have raised with him of, of, you know, well, in principle, it's possible that pedophiles could use childlike human sex robots and that sort of thing Does he? Ha- and, and he was frankly his view seemed to be that if well if it's not human it doesn't matter um, and this might be some even some therapeutic value for someone with those kinds I have, of inclinations. I have seen
1: him quoted as saying that and I have never met David Levy and he is obviously a man who is capable of contrived naivete because in Japan they're already doing this they're already producing you know pedo sex toys like this um, and the notion that this simply won't expand the market, and that people who are using these toys aren't then going to want to try it out on real children, I think is extraordinarily naive. And certainly, the notion we have this great experiment to see if that is what happens uh, seems to me to be to be a, a very terrible thing. I mean, okay, I, it's one thing for people to be using sex toys in their private lives and mm. using these big, you know, fully automated. Um, uh, sex sex robots um' it's quite another thing to um, hazard the the well being of children um and the Japanese are already doing this they don 't seem to care much about these these Gosh. issues in the way in the way that we do in the West, and I think levy is really quite dishonest to be going around giving this
0: kind of apology for what he 's up to i mean. As you say, a lot of this is actually happening in the present day. This isn't necessarily all future stuff. Um, I mean, one of the big issues um, that, that's been hitting the headlines recently is driverless cars. Now, we don't that, that takes us out of sort of humanoid-type hyper-robots, but it's still very much a form of artificial intelligence where human functions are increasingly being replaced by machines, potentially doing a much better job than us. I mean, I think you say in the book that if... You know, once driverless cars become a a general reality, and I think you think they probably will at some point, um, we'll see a lot less accidents because Mm. humans are so, you know, inevitably we make errors so easily compared to Mm. robots. Nonetheless, it does raise ethical implications Mm. about when on the rare occasion a robot car does have to make a decision about whether it hits the child on the pavement or the pedestrian directly in front of them. Um, We're going to have to we have to think through the ethical implications of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think the fact I mean, most people don't realize you you buy a new car now, it's probably got a hundred million lines of code built into it. You're buying a very complex computer, which just happens to have wheels on it. I mean, this is very very different to what cars were like thirty years ago, and this is now. Mm. Um, you know, Uber has ordered twenty four thousand self driving cars from Volvo to be delivered next year, and Uber's new chief, who's a seems to be much more of a sensible guy than the Kalanick who ran Uber originally. I mean, he's talked about this. And he says they're going to try this in certain cities and a small number of rides will be in. And this is very practical. And it's going to happen. I mean, it's, this, this is now. Um, I think in five years' time, it'll be quite normal. I think in 10 years' time, there'll probably be no cab drivers in cities anyway. And there'll be no lorry drivers on motorways. So, in 10 years' time, I think it'll be over. Because the money, is, the money is all one way. I mean, this is going to save a lot of money. It's going to save a lot of lives. And yes, there'll be accidents. The thing is it, it, what's so funny about some of the, the, the these issues of robots replacing people, people we think we're good at everything. We're total generalists. <laughs> Humans are terrible at most things. We are awful, awful drivers. It's a miracle we don't get killed every day we give up on the roads. Road casualties in the US, interestingly, have gone up by twenty five percent in the last five years. Up to forty thousand deaths last year. This isn't even being I haven't seen this anywhere in the press being, being taken seriously. And it's partly because I think it doesn't people texting. I think it's, mm-hmm. it's the car manufacturers putting in these fancy screens. So you've got to play with screens to change the heating rather than, you know, dial knobs. Um, but, yes, these machines are coming. They're going to be an awful lot safer. And even though people now say, oh, I would be scared, people change their minds, mm. you know, um, and, and, and they will. But, yes, I mean, presently, if you're driving along and there are leaves on the road and it's slippery and there's someone pulling out I and mean, crossing the road and there's a child and there's a dog and so on and you end up in an accident and somebody gets killed, I mean, the police aren't going to sit down and work out what you, why did you decide to go on the pavement and kill mm. the child rather than go down the road and kill the woman with the dog. Uh, it's regarded as, a, as an accident. You, you do something instinctive. It, it, you know, there's no examination mm. of this. If it's a self driving vehicle, someone has thought this through. And probably some 22 year old geek has been sitting around writing the code and making a decision about exactly what the car will do in this very particular circumstance. And one of the problems with the fact that, that we in general, and the church in particular, have not been leading this conversation is that these people are operating on the advice of corporate decision makers and company lawyers who are saying this is the safest thing for us to have decided rather than people like us saying, well, what is the human life question that should drive, if you like, the way in which we have accidents?
0: Let's talk about some of the stuff that is more still in the realm of sci-fi, though, at this point. And um, you talk uh, at some length in the book about Ray Kurzweil, I think that's how you pronounce his name, uh, who in many ways has been a long-standing person talking about artificial intelligence. Now, um, he has uh, predicted something in t- for 2045. What is this thing, and do you think it's a, a reality in the way Ray Kurzweil obviously thinks it is?
1: Well, yes, this is what Kurzweil calls the singularity. Singularity is a word that can have various meanings. And in a, in a sci-fi story um, about 30 years ago, a sci-fi writer wrote about it having this particular meaning, and it being the point at which artificial intelligence takes off and become smarter than we are, altogether, and therefore it's going to run everything. And if you imagine this as a curve, you know Moore's law, the idea basically that computer chips get smarter and and, and cheaper all the time, and so on, as a, as a sort of curve going up and up and up. Finally, it goes vertical.
0: It's exponential growth. It's
1: an exponential growth, and and the expert, and finally the factor become becomes vertical or near vertical, um, and you can't predict what's going to happen next, because it's a kind of explosion of intelligence. Um, And, you know, we're kind of hanging on by the seat of our pants and hoping we still have a have a place in this new world which will result. And Kurzweil's been peddling this for a long time. His deadlines have moved on progressively, you know, a bit like some sex, predicting the end of the world, you know, it doesn't happen. So, oh, no, it really is 10 years time. (laughs) Um, And I think one way to look at Kurzweil's work is see it as a kind of kind of secular religion. Uh, which, he, which he goes around peddling. And, I mean, he is making some good points about the exponential uh, development of these technologies. Uh, a lot of smart people fundamentally disagree with him. I mean, I remember seeing him having a debate with a uh, with a professor of, of of biology from Cambridge. And Kurzweil was saying, well, every year, you know, the, the the computer technology gets closer and closer to the workings of the brain. And the professor said, actually, you know, Dr. Kurzweil said... Um, not quite simple as that, because every year we discover we know less about how the brain actually works. So you just can't, you can't do this with it. Mm. Um, and I mean, that's the kind of problem. But there's no question this stuff is getting faster. I mean, you know, I mean little, little facts like, what is it since the 1950s, our computing capacity has increased by a factor of, I mean, not 10, but one trillion. Right. And so if you project
0: 30 years time, another trillion, we've no idea what that means but while kurzweil is somewhat enthusiastic about this superintelligence there are others leading people in these technological fields bill gates um elon musk from tesla uh, and and several others who are very concerned it would appear they really think actually we we're heading into an unknown and we really need to much be much better prepared about what that could now do you do you do you kind of share their kind of concerns about wh- where we would go if we did reach some kind of tipping point of a singularity I certainly share
1: their concerns. I'm not sure whether they're positing this on the singularity idea, but they didn't, you don't need to. You just need to posit it on AI becoming more and more powerful, and things would go wrong. And you can get rogue developments which are unexpected, or you can get deliberate rogue developments. Of course, at heart, technology is all about giving one person more power over other people. Um, and these technologies give small of people enormous power over other people. So, whether it's deliberately being exercised or whether there are accidents, whether things, if you like, like having a, having a bug escape from the lab, I mean, things would go seriously wrong. And so, Gates and Musk and others and Stephen Hawking have, you know, they sell sign this letter a couple of years ago saying that we need to worry about this. And they put some money into this. And there is, in fact, there's a research centre at Cambridge which is working on this. And there are some others. And of course, now we have a House of Logs Select Committee looking at some of these things. And I think this is very, very good. Mm. And I really hope that the church begins to take a lead in shaping these conversations. Because, I mean, these are are very risky things. And it isn't, you know, the debate isn't between the Luddites who want to close it all down and people like Kurzweil who want to party all night because it's all wonderful. I mean, the real debate is in the middle ground. And that's where I think Christians
0: should be. Speaking of um, religion and the there was a story um, last year, Uh, tech pioneer Anthony Lewandowski had filed papers for the creation of a new AI religion with the purpose of the realization, acceptance and worship of a godhead based on artificial intelligence developed through computer hardware and software. Now, I'm not sure if this was more a gimmick than anything, but do, do, do you take that sort of thing seriously? The idea that we could even have a sort of a religious sort of devotion almost to, to AI and its possibilities?
1: Well, I think that is the default religion of much of Silicon Valley. <laughs> um, and it's a wonderfully profitable religion for them at the moment. I, I, that, would, that wouldn't surprise me. I mean, one could be cynical. There are probably tax advantages in the U.S. to having things framed as religions. Um, but there's something quite mysterious here and something which is much more complex than what the people actually controlling it understand. I mean, one of the problems with the Wall Street collapse you know, 10 years ago was that they were writing programs that no one actually understood, which were then doing things that they weren't expected to be doing. And that was 10 years ago, and we've come a long way since then technically. And there's something very mysterious at work here. And um, I think we need to recognize that, I mean, those of us who are believers, that this is a mystery which is unfolding in the midst of God's creation. He's given us these capacities. And just like, you know, we end up inventing nuclear nuclear power and we can explode nuclear bombs Uh, we can develop you know pathogens which could destroy every creature on the planet this is all the downside of the nuclear power and and being able to cure diseases Mm. and so with AI we're letting loose and you know Musk himself and I quote this in the book he says you know are we are we letting loose the demon and I think I think it is I think it is a question we have to keep at the back of our minds and here we have a secular man saying, are oh, we letting loose a demon? And I would love to have Christians begin to think in those terms too.
0: And I think that a, a big question for Christians, as well as secular people, is, is if it were in principle possible to create consciousness or something indistinguishable from what we regard as a truly human characteristic, the ability to reason, to be creative, uh, to, to hold values, um, to experience emotion, if we were able to create that in a machine, would we want to? Because that almost does take us into the, the, the point of view where, from a Christian perspective, we are literally playing God. If that is something that we believe is uniquely bestowed upon humans, this, this level of consciousness that we have, are we, are we in any way or shape capable or responsible enough to, to, to endow it through our own uh, abilities on, on machines?
1: Well, a couple of comments. I mean, one, one is that I, I, I'm not an enthusiast for the term playing God. I was once involved with a project, a sort of multimedia project, which used that as its name, and I went along with it and so on. But I, I thought about it afterwards. I'm, I, I think it's, I think it's a confusing term, because I think God wants us to play along with Him, you know, in in, you know, creating stuff, and you know, the whole dominion mandate is all about doing stuff here, using the skills He's given us. The question is whether we do this in a way which sort of, you know, pokes a finger in His eye, you know, and spits at Him, which is what what sinful nature would, would, would lead us to do. And this could be the case with the primitive technologies. It doesn't just involve fancy technologies. Um, but more generally, and I, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm sure some, not everyone's going to agree with this, but uh, we may plainly create, if we create Westworld type, <coughs> you know, semi-intelligent, or apparently intelligent, you know, walking, breathing, ticking sort of, you know, mechanical, mechanical humanoids, which is entirely plausible. And you haven't got to have some great breakthrough to do that. I mean, a lot of these technologies are in place, and certainly the sex robot stuff is is advancing along one particular path there. Um, I think there are a lot of parallels with what we're discovering about animals. And again, this is a point that I I make in the book, and I'm quite interested in the question of animal intelligence. I don't know much about it, but I've been looking at it much more as I thought about, about machines. And, you know, some people, some scientists think that sperm whales may be smarter than humans. But they haven't got opposable thumbs, and there is great slabs floating around the oceans, living maybe two hundred years or something. But what can they do? I mean, they can't—you know—they can't make machines and go to the moon and so on. Um, but but they maybe have it all up there. Um, and I th- have no problem. I mean, I'm very interested in—you know—the the animal rights people. I think have it wrong. I think they want animals to have rights like humans do. But I have no difficulty with the idea that we should acknowledge that in some of the higher animals. Um, as in some of the machines we may create, um, we develop something which is a kind of analogy to human rights and human dignity, which requires of us a particular kind of respect, um, which, which is of a fundamental character. So that you you do not treat an orangutan, you know, um, as if it as if it you know were a, were a were a chicken, because because there's a far higher level of intelligence there. Um, certainly, you wouldn't treat it as if you as if it were a you know. A, a, Corn stick, you know, I mean, this is a different kind of thing. And that we should be more candid and open to doing that, not be worried about the, the sort of animal rights extremists claiming us as their followers. And I think the same thing may well apply as we develop more intelligent machines, that we have a kind of analogical, if you like, second order respect for them. And if you want to talk about rights and dignity, you can as long as you frame it that way. Um, and the whole, but the key point being, from a Christian perspective, this is precisely because they share in those things which we have as those who bear the image of God. This isn't a kind of rivalry or replication of it. And of course, the same issue I touch on this again is life on other planets. And you know, we just this last this, this week now discovered apparently Earth-like planets in another solar in an, in another galaxy. It's an incredible thing what they can do with radio telescopes, uh, but we've now found, found you know, scores, scads of, of Earth-like planets within within our own galaxy, and there may well be life on some of them. I mean, C.S. Lewis, of course, wrote his marvelous mm. Perelandra and so on about, and this this may well be the case. There may well be other creatures out there, and this is going to cause our theologians to have quite quite a stew. I mean, they're <laughs> going to get migraines over this. Um, but I mean, God God may well have done this. Um, and and how will we handle those kinds of intelligence, little little green men from not Mars, but I mean from some Mars and some other other solar system? And so, I think our notions of human and the uniqueness of of, of, of human dignity, uniqueness of our, our bearing the image of God. I think there needs to be an openness to the development of and perhaps the discovery of other intelligences.
0: As a good Presbyterian, you'll you'll know that one of the things that were given as a responsibility for humans in the garden was was the work was to subdue the earth was to to be part as you say playing with god in in this act of creation and part of that is our you know our natural propensity to work um now this is again one of the major concerns you have in the book and you've written about it elsewhere as well is the way that robotics inevitably is is a technological revolution that will have implications for jobs for people for all the kinds of roles that people currently do manual roles especially which can easily be done far ch- more cheaply by robotic labor. Um, I mean, that's happened in all kinds of industries already in various ways. But you, you genuinely take seriously the possibility that we may see much, much more unemployment in the future because of the way that robotics and AI is going. I, I think, I think a, prudent, a prudent person looking ahead will plan
1: for the serious possibility of lower levels of employment. I mean, we've had this thing called full employment, which isn't a technical term, really. It just means that most people who want jobs can get them. And you have unemployment, you know, going between 3 and 4%, 10% and so on, goes up and down with the economic cycle. But, I mean, this has been the case for a long time. We'd be very lucky. It isn't a natural order of things. A lot of it involves manipulation by central banks and governments and so on. Um, and this is, this is a situation that may not continue. And I think prudent governments, and I mean, I've mean, i talked to people in government about this in several countries over the last two or three years. I said, you need to have a plan for when, you know, instead of around 5% unemployment, you're talking of around 30% or around 50%. What's going to happen then? And I think in practical terms, this means social policy issues need to all to be re-examined. The distinctions we have between being retired and working, between full-time, part-time, charity work, paid work, student work, all of these distinctions have been set up in a situation where you have a full-time job or you don't have a full-time job. I see just this morning, I just read the headline that uh, Theresa May's government is looking into having some sort of new deal for gig workers, part-time workers giving them rights and so on. That's the sort of conversation to have, although it tends to be a conversation about how to make this operate like they had real full-time jobs in the old economy. The old economy is not going to be there in 20 and 30 years' time. Um, second comment would be that um, John Maynard Keynes, you know, who was the greatest economist of the 20th century, a uh, rather delightfully cultured, somewhat eccentric Englishman, uh, wrote an essay toward the end of his life um, <coughs> called economic, economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. Well, he's looking ahead, and he talks about well. He comes up with the phrase technological unemployment. I think it was his phrase, and and he sees a time when maybe we'll only need to work fifteen hours a week. He talks in a wonderfully ironic way about what he calls a new leisured class, because this was the days of you know P.G. Woodhouse and gentlemen <laughs> and so on who didn't need to work, but a new leisure class, by which of course he means widespread unemployment of people who don't need to work because they can't work. Mm. And I think we at least need to plan for these possibilities. And, I mean, I did a a TEDx speech down in uh, Brazil three or four years ago. Very interesting trip, partly because I was just completely zonked from jet lag when I (laughs) made my speech. But (laughs) it's it's up there and it worked. And I tell you, you know, it's meant to be 18 minutes, these things. It was 18 minutes and one second. I was very proud of it. Wow. Well done. But I said it's heaven or hell. Yes. And this could be heaven if we only had to work 15 hours a week. And we could do cultural things, family things, church things, Occupy time in other ways. Hell, if basically we we're all, quote unemployed, unquote, you know, living on the dole, and we spend a lot of time watching television and
0: eating eating McDonald's, right? And I mean, which way does this go? And the church should be leading. Absolutely. I, I and I think one of the issues that you, you sort of very interestingly paint two ideas of of two possible speeches of prime ministers in twenty forty reflecting on widespread changes in society because of the the advancement of robotics in all areas of employment and one in which is all pro the future of robotics and the fact that we need to now be making certain provisions to make sure that people uh, who don't have a job are are sort of um, given enough basic income and that sort of thing uh, and so on but then another which is a more nihilistic version where there's obviously been mass rioting and all kinds of social upheaval going on uh, in which the the, the primacy of humans over robots is always kept at the forefront and that we must put technology in its place and and always humans must come first and, and we're going to stop creating humanoid-like robots and all that sort of thing. So which of those two futures do you think is the most likely, the one where we just accept that the future is robotics and we're going to sort of become possibly the leisured class, who knows, maybe this sort of um, yeah, this binge TV-watching class, who knows, or the one where we say enough is enough, we've got to come first, and we've, we, we, humans are special in a way that we have to make sure the robots don't take our place in that way.
1: Well, I think there are, there are sort of little sort of sprigs of green in this situation. I think there are signs people are thinking about the human questions. Just in the last day or two, um, there's been an announcement of a new project out in Silicon Valley called, I think It's called the Centre for Humane Technology. And it's being run by a lot of people who used to work for Facebook and Google in the early days. And they've seen the error of their ways. And they've come out swinging, saying this stuff is destroying us. It's destroying all the things that are are important to us in our society. Destroying our attention, our relationships, thinning out our entire experience. And so they're putting a lot of their (laughs) ill-gotten gains from their stock options, I mean, into pushing back. And doing some fresh thinking and doing lobbying and doing education with schools and stuff. I think there are signs that, you know, people, I mean, you know, the, 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 fam- the famous uh, quote, you know, what was it? Was it the um, man who founded Napster, Sean Parker, Sean Parker, mm. the other day, uh, came out. Cause he was the first president of Facebook. He was president of Facebook in the mm. early days with Zuckerberg. And he says, God knows what this stuff is doing with our brains. And so the, the, I think, I think this, this, this is very healthy. People are rethinking, people who are from that community. This isn't just classic Luddites from you know, the radical left. These are high-tech people, and they've begun to realize, partly because they have kids. I mean, you know, you know the guy who runs uh, Google was just saying the other day, uh, Who runs Apple the other was just saying the other day that his, um, he won't let his, his uh, nephew use social media. This is Mr. Apple. And yeah.
0: he knows social media back to front.
1: Uh, they know too much. And it'd be interesting to see when the Zuckerberg kids grow up, you know, Mark Zuckerberg has two small children, just what exactly they do with them. Because, you know, you know, Facebook just launched this thing for six-year-olds, mm. kids, messenger for kids to get six-year-olds. And the reason they've launched it is because their teenage numbers are going down a bit. So, of course, they come up with all of this guff about the fact Mm. that small children need to talk to their Mm. parents at work. Uh, This is all about making money by getting their eyeballs when they're six years old. Well, when Zuckerberg's kids are six, I wonder whether they'll be. So, I mean, I, I think there are signs of rethinking going on in the next generation. So maybe I'm a bit hopeful. And as a
0: Christian overall, where do you find yourself concerned or confident for the future? As a Christian, well, we're in the hands of God, and the world
1: has gone through terrible things, and God seems to have a plan in which that's part of the deal. So I think we can't <clears throat> we can't claim that God will somehow save us from the worst consequences of human sin now any more than He did, you know, during the Holocaust and and all the the, the, the Thirty Years' War and the other mm. wicked experiences of, of we, we we've been through. At the same time. Um, I think, I think there are certainly signs of hope that uh, smart people are thinking ahead and can see the dramatic nature of these changes. I could wish more of these people were Christians, but I'm very glad that they're concerned for many of the values that are also of concern to us. I mean, for family values, for humane values, for the dignity of the individual, for privacy. These are very much Christian concerns, and maybe it's going to be the pagans who end up saving us, as they have in the past, um, from, you know, from our worst inclinations, but I think there's an opportunity for Christian leaders to take the helm here because we've thought about what it means to be human. We accept that God has given us these technologies and
0: we want to be responsible. Let's work out how to do that. Thank you so much for joining me for a fascinating conversation on The Profile today, Nigel. Great to be here. It's been great to have you, Nigel. Cameron, you can find out more about him. His new book, The Robots Are Coming, Us, Them, and God, is published by CARE. And do check out this edition of the program as well online. Share it with your friends, premierchristianradio.com slash the profile, or find it in its own podcast as well. And don't forget, you can find more interviews with leading Christians in all walks of life via our partner, Premier Christianity Magazine, Go and ask for a free sample copy, premierchristianity.com slash free sample. For now, I've been Justin Briley, your host for The Profile this week, handing over to find out what's been happening on Premier in the last seven days in Premier Playback coming up next.